This video is part of an audiobook series featuring Designing Reality, How to Survive and Thrive in the Third Digital Revolution by the Gershenfeld Brothers in 2017. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel, find me on Spotify, or visit my website for downloads. Chapter 3, The Science. To see where digital fabrication is heading, we first need to understand where it's coming from. Depending on how you count, the third digital revolution could be recognized as starting around the year 2000 with the maker movement and the first fab labs. Or, it could be considered to have started around the year 1950 when an early computer was connected to a manufacturing machine for the first time at MIT. Or, its start could be dated to around 4 billion years ago when life evolved the machinery for molecular manufacturing. Whichever of these you choose, there's a close historical parallel with the corresponding stages in the digitization of communication and computation. All three digital revolutions are based on the same core ideas. And the common historical lesson is that the implications of each could be seen and used long before the revolution was apparent and the technology reached its final form. The past is indeed the prologue for the third digital revolution, as we will see in this chapter. Beginning with the projections that originally led to Moore's Law and which are now leading to Lass's Law. From Moore's Law to Lass's Law in 1965, Gordon Moore published the most famous graph in history, the one, the one that has come to define the digital revolutions in communication and computation. Electronics Magazine had asked him to forecast the use of electronic components for the next decade. At the time, Moore was the head of R&D at Fairchild Semiconductor, and he went on to co-found Intel in 1968. He saw the future in five data points. When the number of components in an integrated circuit was plotted against time, the results showed that they were doubling every year or so. The classic reason for doubling is reproduction. After a cell divides, there are two cells. After those divide, there are four, and then eight, and sixteen, and so forth. The series can be written with an exponent counting the number of factors of two to multiply. The logarithmic function does the opposite of the exponential, counting the number of multiples. That's why a linear increase in logarithm corresponds with an exponential increase in the quantity being measured. And it's why Moore plotted the logarithm of the number of transistors against time, so that the doubling trend would appear as a straight line. Many of our physical senses have a logarithmic response. Because we perceive a doubling of the intensity of a light or of the volume of a sound as equal increments, we can go from a dim room into bright sunlight without being blinded or from a quiet hallway into a loud concert. But our perception of the world is more typically linear. Bank statements count the number of dollars, not the number of zeros in an account. Clocks measure the passage of time, not the doubling of time. With just five data points, the logarithmic plot doesn't look very different from the linear plot. But the relationship is called Moore's Law rather than Moore's Graph because he made the leap to extrapolate that the straight line trend would continue for a decade. If you plot the number of transistors on a linear graph, it appears that nothing is happening until there is an abrupt revolution, but the logarithmic plot lets your eyes see that the number is steadily doubling. Moore almost got this right. The doubling actually continued for five decades. The heart of Moore's law can be seen in the number of transistors in the microprocessors that Intel produces. Over the following four decades, the number has continued to double, extending the straight line on a logarithmic plot. 
If you plotted the numbers linearly, you would probably conclude, unless you were paying attention, that nothing much was happening for decades and that around the year 2000, a revolution in digital technologies occurred. That might have been how it felt with our linear perception, but the logarithmic plot makes clear that the trend had been going on for decades before. What is reproducing in an integrated circuit? The best answer is, a is an indirect one. The bits are reproducing. The analog alternative does not behave the same way. In this book's introduction, we observed that if a page is fed into a copier, then there are two copies, and then if those are copied, there are four, and then eight. But each successive copy degrades slightly until subsequent copies all end up a garbled mess. Doubling can continue only if it's coupled with error correction. Cells do that, do that by detecting and correcting errors in the genome when it's duplicated to be passed on during cell division. The biggest integrated circuits now have billions of transistors. Each one degrades the signal, but there's an exponential reduction in these errors because the circuits keep restoring the logical state of the bits. This ongoing error correction can keep up with the exponential increase in transistors so that the output of the billionth transistor is as reliable as the first. Transistors don't literally make transistors, but metaphorically they do. They go into chips that go into computers that are used to b design better computers. They are used to send messages that prompt more messages. They are used to write programs that write more programs. The result of this feedback loop has been an exponential improvement in not just the number of transistors that can fit on a chip, but also in their size, their speed, and their cost. These improvements have led in turn to exponential improvements in digital communication and computation systems, including the size of memories, the speed of networks, and the number of connected computers. Since Moore never actually called his observation Moore's Law, there has been some debate about exactly what Moore's Law measures. The best answer is the performance of information technologies. The importance of Moore's Law comes not from its definition, but rather from the observation that decades of data points have followed the initial trends. When plotted against time, each of these measures of the performance of digital technologies forms a straight line on a logarithmic scale. But that doesn't mean the embodiments of the underlying technologies have been straight lines. Instead, they appeared in epochs. The first messages sent via the precursors to the internet were between building-filling mainframes. When the internet reached 1,000 sites, they were room-filling mini-computers. At 1 million, they were desk-filling personal computers, and at 1 billion, they were pocket-filling smartphones. And the same kind of thing was happening inside the devices in the system. Integrated circuits were first made by manually cutting out the artwork for exposure masks that photographically define where to etch and deposit material on a silicon wafer that will become an integrated circuit, a lost art that I originally learned. This step was then automated. The masks were first placed in direct contact with the wafer and later projected with reduction optics. The exposure was first done with visible light and later with shorter wavelength extreme ultraviolet light and so forth. In each of the decades of Moore's Law, there were confident predictions of the imminent demise of further improvements because of looming difficulties in any one of these technologies. Each of these technological transitions allowed the performance scaling to continue. Exponential growth does eventually reach resource limits. The technical term for that is a sigmoid function, which just means an S-shaped curve. There is a period at what appears to be flat growth, the bottom of the S, then a period of accelerating growth, the middle of the S, 
and then a slow a return to slow growth as constraints are encountered, the top of the S. In biological cell growth, the cells run out of space and nutrients. Moore's law is running out of physics as it hits fundamental limits. Around 2015, all the quantities that had been doubling began slowing down. The features in mass-produced chips are getting so small that it's necessary to keep track of the individual atoms in the devices. And in the lab, there are single electron transistors to do just that, turning on and off depending on the presence or absence of one electron. A transistor cannot shrink any smaller than that unless we start programming atomic nuclei, something that's not done outside of high-energy particle accelerators. Moore's law is also running out of people. Once almost everyone has access to a computer and is connected to the internet, there is no longer the same demand that drove these devices' development. Digital computing and communications are becoming commodities that are incrementally replaced rather than rapidly adopted. If people are like the nutrients feeding the spread of computers, the sigmoid curve of adoption starts slowing down well before it hits its ultimate limit. Which is why, as Joel and Alan explain, reaching the last few billion humans is taking so much longer than did reaching the previous few billion. The end of Moore's Law is the source of great angst for both technologists, technologists and economists because it corresponds to a period of tremendous growth in productivity and prosperity. The assumption is that if the technology stops improving, so will the economy. It's less of a concern for most consumers who are now bombarded by a sea of digital data competing for their attention and who are no longer so obviously running into performance limitations in their computers. Saturating demand runs into what has been called Moore's second law, and that is the cost of chip fabrication. He didn't originally plot this, but the cost of the factories that make state-of-the-art chips has been growing along with everything else, so that these facilities now cost billions of dollars and the development of a current generation chip can cost a hundred million dollars. Once the money is spent, the transistors cost fractions of a cent, but the huge capital outlay has become prohibitive for all but the biggest manufacturers and markets. The cost of a chip fab has gone up rather than down because it's based on analog processes. Materials are continuously deposited or etched Extreme demands are placed on the uniformity and tolerances of the processes, and any defects can completely ruin a chip. One of the most closely guarded secrets in the industry is the yield, the depressingly small fraction of good chips made in a state-of-the-art process. The promise of the third digital revolution is to move manufacturing from Moore's second law to the first one. Around when we set up the first fab lab in 2003, I visited Gordon at Intel to consider this possibility. He arrived in our meeting from the kind of modest cubicle that all Intel executives work in. He is very humble about his role. He didn't name the law after himself, and he had a hard time referring to it that way. The name came from a, a Caltech collaborator, Carver Mead. Intel's keepers of Moore's Law maintain a clear organiz organizational separation between the computer scientists developing the programs and logic for integrated circuits and the physical scientists developing the devices and process technologies to build them. The computers are digital, but the manufacturing processes are analog. As described earlier, I first appreciated that there might be something like a Moore's Law for digital fabrication when Sherry Lassiter, a manager of the Fab Lab for CBA and later the Fab Foundation, noticed after a few years that the number of Fab Labs was doubling roughly every year and a half.
Hers was a decidedly analog initial observation. The pile of papers on her desk with Fab Lab correspondence appeared to be doubling in height. We jokingly noted the parallel to Moore's Law, what we are calling here Lass's Law. Like Moore's Law, the projection has already extended much further than we anticipated. After a bit more than a decade, the number is around a thousand Fab Labs, the result of ten doubling cycles. Here, the origin of the reproduction is clear. Once a fab lab opens, it inspires people who see it to want another one. And what could be considered error correction at this stage is how the fab labs have an evolving set of the same core capabilities so that people and projects can be shared. The first point in the plot of fab lab growth starts in 2003 with the first fab lab, rather than in the 1950s with the invention of computer-controlled manufacturing. In the 1950s, the size and cost of a fab lab would have been matched by each of the 10 or so computers required to run all the machines. Not until, thanks to Moore's Law, the cost, size, and performance of digital computing and communications could be contained within each of the machines did fab labs become feasible. As with Moore's Law after its first decade, it's now both ambitious and prudent to project that the doubling of fab labs will continue after their first decade. That means the equivalent of a million fab labs after the next decade or so, and a billion following the decade after that. Like the spread of the internet, Lassa's law doesn't mean a billion room-filling facilities. Rather, each of these decades marks a technical epoch in the integration and accessibility of the technology to make almost anything. Like the many quantities that came to be subsumed by Moore's Law, Lass's Law is likely to extend to the number of ways to characterize the performance of digital fabrication. These measures include the number of parts placed, the rate at which they're placed, the size and cost of a part, and the complexity of what can be assembled within them. When the internet reached a billion computers, the chips in those computers were reaching a billion transistors. When there are the equivalent of a billion fab labs, they'll likely be making things that contain a billion parts. Believing in that is absurd as believing in Moore's Law. In Chapter 5, I'll look at how we're going to get there. Lass's Law can be viewed as a continuation rather than a replacement for Moore's Law. Moore's Law has lived in Flatland, the real estate of the integrated circuit. Lass's Law lifts it from 2D into the three-dimensional world we live in and Moore's Law has applied to the specifications of chips after they're produced. Lass's Law extends, back, extends it back to how they, and everything else, are made. The conclusion of the third digital revolution is that the long-sought killer app for the future of computation is fabrication. Communication, Computation, Fabrication Moore's Law can be viewed as being what like an economist would call macroeconomics, or what a physicist would call thermodynamics, an aggregate system property. To understand the workings of the historical parallel between Moore's Law and Lass's Law, we need to look beyond these scaling graphs and examine the equivalent of microeconomics, or what a physicist would call statistical mechanics, the individual elements that make up the system. These are the computing and communicating machines in the first and second digital revolutions, and the fabricating machines in the third digital revolution. When computers were first developed by and for large institutions, they filled buildings. The architecture of modern interactive computers can be traced back to the first major computer that could respond in real time to inputs as they happened, rather than by processing them in batches. The Whirlwind One was developed by MIT's Servo Mechanisms Laboratory 
Originally to replace the analog computers that ran flight simulators, it later became the basis of the Semi-Automatic Ground Environment, or SAGE, air defense system. Developed in 1947, the Whirlwind 1 became operational in 1951. It cost several million dollars and filled a few floors of a building. The first computerized control of a manufacturing machine was an offshoot of this project in 1952. An inventor named John Parsons brought to MIT a proposal to connect a real-time computer to a milling machine to make the increasingly complex parts required for a new jet aircraft. The Servo Mechanisms Laboratory embraced the idea, but not him, leaving Parsons off the Air Force project developing what we now call a numerically controlled mill. A computer could continuously move the rotating cutting spindle in all three directions simultaneously, following paths that would be impossible for a machinist to do with two hands. Many kinds of fabrication tools have since been used in the machine's descendants to replace the rotating spindle of the milling machine, but the basic principles have otherwise been unchanged since 1952. The successor to the Whirlwind 1 at MIT was the TX0 and then the TX2, the first significant computers to use transistors rather than vacuum tubes. This difference is important in a number of ways. First, the transistors could be packed into a smaller space. Second, they did not generate the same amount of heat when operating. Third, they required less power to operate. Fourth, they were just more reliable. Together, these benefits enabled a smaller, more efficient device that could make faster calculations. The TX0 and TX2 were first operational in 1956, and the engineering team led by Ken Olson spun them off a year later as the PDP, Programmed Data Processor, family of computers sold by DEC. PDPs brought the cost of computing down from millions to hundreds and then to tens of thousands of dollars, and the size of a computer down from a building to a room and then to an equipment rack. PDPs were not easy to use. When I first learned how to use one, it was necessary to connect and master separate units for processing, memory, storage, input, output, communication, and power. But because they could be owned by a work group rather than a whole organization, someone like me could just get access to one. Just about everything you now use a computer for today was first done on a PDP, from writing documents to playing video games to sending messages over what became the internet. DEC went on to spawn a computing industry along Boston's Route 128, which became the center of the computing universe. Along with DEC, all the, all the leading mini-computer manufacturers were there, including Prime, Data General, Apollo, and Wang. For manufacturing, today's fab labs match the cost and complexity of a PDP for computing, again filling a room and initially costing around $100,000. Just as the PDP was a system that together does the job of what we now call a computer, the fab lab can be viewed as a system to do digital fabrication. Fab labs can turn data into things, and things into data, but they do so within a lab that entails learning how to use multiple machines. But because fab labs, like PDPs, can belong to a work group rather than a large organization, they are likewise being used to explore how digital fabrication will be used when everyone has access. The first true personal computer was the Altair 8800. Designed by technicians from the Kirtland Air Force Base in Albuquerque for the Micro Instrumentation and Telemetry Systems Company, 
MITS, an acronym intentionally chosen to sound similar to MIT, the computer was launched to make instrumentation kits for model rocket enthusiasts. When this hobbyist computer kit appeared on the cover of Popular Electronics in 1975, it was a life-changing experience for the magazine's readers, including me. I still remember sitting in the back seat of my parents' car, clutching the new issue with my jaw hanging open at the implications. When the Altair originally shipped, the only way to load data, to load a program into it, was to flip switches on the front panel with the data, and the only way to get results was to watch the front panel lights blink. But because the cost came down to around $1,000, this was a computer that an individual could own. Bill Gates and Paul Allen used a PDP at Harvard to develop Microsoft's first product, or Microsoft, as they originally wrote it, a basic language interpreter for the Altair. The arrival of the Altair was also the impetus for the first meeting of the Homebrew Computer Club, inspiring Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs to launch Apple Computer. While all this was happening, the Altair was being ignored by the mini-computer industry. Ken Olson famously said in 1977 that, quote, there is no reason for any individual to have a computer in his home, end quote. Although his comment has been widely misinterpreted, he was referring to a computer literally in the construction of the home, rather than a personal computer used by its occupants. But he still had it wrong, failing to anticipate the rapid spread of smart devices within the home. All the mini computer companies failed when personal computers arrived because the companies had seen them as uncompetitive toys. As I noted in Chapter 1, DEC was eventually sold to Compaq, which in turn was merged into HP. In retrospect, the organizational change lesson here is that the mini computer industry was doomed. The best thing it could have done would have been to give up, rather than try and hang on. Digital fabrication today is passing through a stage that can be compared to Altair's history. A number of Fab Lab projects are doing rapid prototyping of rapid prototyping machines. These are versions of Fab Lab machines that can be made with other Fab Lab machines. And like the mini computer industry's response to the Altair, the consistent response from the manufacturing industry to Fab Labs has been that these toys might be good for fun things like education or entertainment but they won't affect the serious business of manufacturing. But these tools can already locally produce many of the products that consumers now purchase from global supply chains. Just as PCs led to the demise of the mini-computer industry, fab labs are likely to lead to new jobs that don't come back to old factories. The PC emerged in its modern form with the Apple II in 1977 and then the IBM PC in 1981. The PC appeared to be a single unit with an on-off switch, but internally it integrated the room full of subsystems found in a PDP. There's nothing yet analogous to a PC for personal fabrication. It's not the 3D printer, much as the hype around them might suggest, because these printers are just one of the many digital fabrication machines needed within a fab lab to produce all but the simplest finished products and it's not going to be the shrinking of all the machines now into a fab lab into a box, because that would still rely on the substantial inventory of the raw materials and waste disposal that these now require. Rather, we will see that a true personal fabricator, like the universal Star Trek fabricator or replicator, rests on the much more fundamental sense of digital fabrication encoding the construction of the materials. 
4 billion years of digitization. Digital is a good candidate for the word that is simultaneously most widely used and widely misunderstood. The meaning of digital in communication, computation, and fabrication has a common origin that is much deeper than the use of ones and zeros. Compare the properties of one of my favorite fabrication systems, a child playing with Lego bricks, with one of my least favorite ones, today's 3D printers. Reliability. Because of the error correction that comes from snapping the bricks together, the Lego construction is more accurate than the motor control of the child. The 3D printer, on the other hand, is only as good as the position measurement of the printing head, and will fail if there's a disruption in the flow of material through the head. Modularity. Lego bricks made out of dissimilar materials can be joined by a standard interface, but 3D printing requires materials that can all go through the same deposition process. Okay, not true. Locality. The child doesn't need a ruler to place the bricks. The global geometry comes from the local parts. This means a child can make something bigger than himself or herself. The 3D printer is restricted to its bed size. Reversibility. Lego bricks, unlike 3D prints, don't end up in the trash. Trash itself is an analog concept, meaning there's no information in the material to guide its disassembly. These four attributes, reliability, modularity, locality, and reversibility, are the essential attributes of digital systems for communication, computation, and fabrication that converge in the third digital revolution. We'll look at the digitization of each of these in turn. In 1931, Vannevar Bush made one of the last great analog computers at MIT, the Differential Analyzer. It was a room full of gears and pulleys that could be configured to solve engineering equations. The longer it ran, the more the answer diverged from its correct value. The digital computers that you use today, hopefully, don't do that. You can thank the mathematician John von Neumann, who showed how to compute reliably with unreliable devices. In Probable Logic and the Synthesis of Reliable Organisms from from Unreliable Components, a monograph based on a series of lectures he gave in 1952 on work he had done a few years earlier, he proves what we now call the Threshold Theorem. He showed that by computing with discrete symbols like 1 and 0, rather than continuous quantities like the rotation of gears and pulleys, if the probability that that a device in the computer will make a mistake in an operation is above a threshold, which depends on the system design, then a computation is doomed to fail. But if the probability of a mistake is below the threshold, then the likelihood that the computation fails falls off exponentially as a function of how many times each operation is replicated to check the result. The likelihood of the mistakes happening vanishes so fast that a digital computation can be designed to effectively never encounter an error. They do occur, but very rarely. In all of engineering, there are very few insights that lead to exponential improvements in performance. This is the most important one, and is the real meaning of digital in computation, communication, and fabrication. Von Neumann built on the work of Claude Shannon, who he met in 1940 at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey. In 1937, Shannon had written what is probably one of the most influential master's theses ever at MIT. After working for Bush on the differential analyzer, Shannon realized that the electromechanical relays used to switch telephone calls could be connected to evaluate arbitrary expressions of true and false statements, called Boolean logic. 
He didn't just do this abstractly. He demonstrated how to go about designing these universal logic circuits, which were the foundation of all the computers to follow. After MIT, Shannon moved to Bell Labs, wherever greater demands were being placed on the phone system. Rather than make incremental improvements, he answered a profound question that hadn't been asked. What are the fundamental limits? In A Mathematical Theory of Communication, published in 1948, he developed a theory of information. Along with showing how messages can be compressed, Shannon introduced a threshold theorem for communication. If a message is sent in symbols rather than the continuous analog quantities in use at the time, again, if the electrical noise on the phone line is above a threshold, then the message is sure to be garbled. But if the noise is below a threshold, then the probability of a mistake in receiving the message falls off as an exponential function of how many times the result is checked. What matters is not the specific values of 0 and 1. It's the use of discrete values that allow errors to be detected. Many digital systems, such as the cell phone, use other sets of symbols that can be more efficient. You're currently receiving a set of 26 symbols that can be used to detect errors. It then took about a decade for the phone system to begin the transition from analog to digital, a transition that led to the internet. In a sobering lesson about organizational change, Bob Lucky, a thoughtful Bell Labs manager whose employment spanned from Shannon's day to when I worked there, explained that there had been a battle between the analog and digital camps. It was resolved, not by persuasion, but by attrition. The managers who were analog advocates died out, and a new generation of digital managers took over. Shannon's Bell Labs colleague John Tukey coined the term bit as a contraction of binary digit to refer to the, the smallest unit of information. But the concept of a bit has a physical origin, first appearing in 1929 in Leo Szilard's analysis of Maxwell's demon. In this thought experiment that the physicist James Clerk Maxwell posed in 1867, a microscopic demon could open and close a partition between two chambers and selectively separate fast and slow gas molecules to power an engine indefinitely, without appearing to have done any work. Zylard, who would go on to be a leader in both creating and then controlling atomic weapons, reduced this puzzle to its essence with a single molecule and a bit of information being which side of the partition the molecule is on. The connection between information and physics was completed at IBM in 1971 when Wolf, Rolf Landauer finally exercised the demon by explaining that it isn't a perpetual motion machine once the mind of the demon is included in the accounting. He and his colleague Charles Bennett went on to show that abstract thought necessarily consumes physical resources. Landauer and Benefits were my mentors in the study of the physics of computation, introducing me to the concept that information is physical. The inevitable consequence of that observation, for me, was the connection between computation and fabrication. The link from digitization to fabrication was first made a bit earlier, about four billion years ago. That's the evolutionary age of my most favorite manufacturing machine, the ribosome. This is a molecule that makes molecules. It reads a code, the genetic code, that arrives in a messenger RNA molecule. The genetic code has all the properties of a digital code that Shannon and von Neumann introduced. Errors can be detected and corrected, and is designed so that when errors do occur, adjacent code words produce molecules that have similar properties. But these molecular messages from the genome don't just describe shapes, they become shapes. 
The symbols in this code are written as A, C, G, and U, which represent the bases adenine, cytosine, guanine, and uracil. Codons, or groups of three of these letters, are matched to one of 20 standard amino acids, which are a bit like molecular Legos. The amino acids are first formed as linear structures in a sequence, which then fold into a secondary structure of geometrical motifs like helices and sheets, which form the tertiary structure of 3D protein shapes. Out of these tertiary structures are built the quaternary structure of functional systems, such as the sensors our bodies use to detect smells or light, and the motors that move our muscles. What's remarkable, remarkable about these amino acids is how unremarkable they are. They have a range of properties, such as attracting or repelling water, or being more acidic or less so. None of these are extreme properties. The chemical behavior is ordinary. Yet, through the combination of these 20 standard amino acids, it's possible to make you. If you mix two chemicals that have a reaction, a yield of 99% is considered good, meaning that 1% didn't react. The ribosome makes an error once in 10 to the fourth power steps when it makes a protein because it's constructing a code. DNA replication, which adds an extra error correction step, has an error rate of 1 in 10 to the eighth power. That's the exponential scaling of threshold theorems, and is what makes possible the complexity of you. The secret of life is that it is digital. The genetic code carries a message that performs a computation to program fabrication. The third digital revolution has been with us since the dawn of life, but it has been restricted to what can be made with the materials of molecular biology. What has been four billion years in the making is the extension of that insight to the presently inanimate part of the world. Intelligent Design if the secret of life is that it's digital, then how is it programmed? This isn't a rhetorical question. My lab is a part of a collaboration that, led by the J. Craig Venter Institute, is creating living cells by designing them in a computer and then resynthesizing their complete genomes. To design a self-reproducing assembler, we'll need to learn how to do the same in systems that we create from scratch, engineering their evolution. The obvious answer to how life is programmed is the genetic code, but this answer is as informative as observing that Shakespeare's plays were written with an alphabet of 26 letters. Knowing what the symbols are is only the starting point in learning the language. It turns out that this question is at the heart of the historical alignment of all three digital revolutions. Making anything with a computer today is like a bad version of the party game where a message gets passed until it's hopelessly corrupted. It starts with CAD, learning how to use computer programs that have had notoriously steep learning curves to design what you want to make. Then comes CAM, converting the design into steps for a machine to follow to make it. That's followed by machine control, converting the CAM instructions into operations for a particular machine. Finally comes motion control, interpreting those operations for the particular parts of a machine. All these steps usually go in only one direction. There's no way for the machine to talk back to the design about problems that arise in making it. And all this has to be redone if anything changes in the design or in the machine. This state of affairs came about because, historically, each of these steps was done by a different person at a different place and time. You could attribute this division of labor to a mistake made back in the Renaissance. That is when the liberal arts emerged as mastery of the means of expression, 
which meant the trivium and quadrivium, roughly language and natural science, respectively. When making things was relegated to an illiberal art pursued for commercial gain, art and artisans diverged. This divide is why I was told in high school that I wasn't allowed to go to vocational school because I was too smart, and why at Bell Labs I was reprimanded for going into the workshop to make something, rather than telling the workers there that I wanted them to make something. This no longer makes sense if one person can do all these steps at the same place and the same time. This means, the exp uh, this means of expression have changed since the Renaissance. 3D machining or microcontroller programming can be every bit as expressive as painting a painting or writing a sonnet. Personal rather than mass production demands a new notion of literacy that embraces making as a skill that's every bit as fundamental as reading and writing. Recognizing that there is a design literacy for digital fabrication will correct this historical error. But it still assumes that there is a designer. Although this observation might sound somewhere between tautological and theological, who designed you? The answer lies in an even deeper connection between computation and fabrication. To understand that, we have to understand how the digital and physical worlds diverged. I'm happy to take credit for the observation that computer science was the worst thing to happen to either computers or science. By that, I mean that the canon of computer science is founded on non-physical assumptions. It teaches one how to write software in languages that are divorced from physical reality, and that then rely on someone somewhere else to translate the virtual back into the physical. It's a bit like the movie Metropolis, where the rulers frolicked in sunlit gardens while, deep below, workers moved the levers that made the city work. And like Metropolis, there's a revolution brewing down below. One of those basement dwellers is my former student Jason Taylor, who, as the vice president of infrastructure at Facebook, is responsible for building its enormous computing facilities. Another basement dweller is my former student Rafi Krikorian, who had the same job at Twitter. Neither of them studied computer science with me, but on the epic scale that they're working on, you can't believe in software as an abstraction removed from physics. Their job is to convert dollars of investment, pounds of equipment, and watts of electricity into information most effectively. The prevailing segregation of hardware and software is embodied in what's called the von Neumann computer architecture. Von Neumann wrote beautifully and carefully about his seminal contributions, like how to compute reliably with unreliable devices. This was not one of those. It comes from a memo that he wrote in 1945, first draft of a report on the EDVAC. As the title suggests, this was not a document for the ages. The EDVAC was one of the earliest electronically programmable digital computers. The report presented his thoughts on how it could be programmed. He suggested dividing it into what he called organs, like a processing unit and a memory unit. This computer could speed through calculations at a thousand operations per second. Any self-respecting smartphone or PC can do that can do a billion operations per second today, but we are still living with the legacy of the EDVAC's limitations on their design. Von Neumann and Claude Shannon had met Alan Turing in Princeton at the Institute for Advanced Study during the World War II code-breaking effort. In 1936, Turing, from Cambridge, England, introduced a theoretical model of computation that was based on a tape containing symbols that are read and written as it moves past a programming head. He used this model, which came to be called a Turing machine, to introduce the notion of a universal computer that can simulate any other kind of universal computer, 
and then he showed that there are problems that can't be solved by a computer. These profound insights were never meant to suggest a serious computer architecture. Unfortunately, this is effectively what happened, and the parts of Turing's machine became enshrined in the organs in von Neumann's architecture. The problem with this legacy is that when the head is considered a separate entity from the tape, most of the computer's power is wasted shuttling information around. Very little power goes to actual logical work, even though the memory transistors are as computationally capable as the processor transistors are. And many of the security vulnerabilities in a computer arise from things that are supposed to be logically separated but end up being physically adjacent. Von Neumann understood these problems. Other than the EDVAC draft report, he never wrote about his architecture. The last thing he wrote, which is in the beautiful and profound category, is his Theory of Self-Reproducing Automata, published posthumously in 1966. He was ultimately interested in understanding life. To study this, he co-developed with colleague Stan Ulam a very different model for computation. Called Cellular Automata, the model explicitly represents space and time as well as logic. You can think of it as a self-playing game of checkers, with tokens moving on a regular grid. This was computation in the real, rather than the virtual world. It could compute anything that any other universal computer could do, but now operations could happen in parallel everywhere, all the time. Von Neumann used this computational universe to design a machine that can reproduce itself, including the instructions for how to do that. This was a theoretical construct at the time, but we'll see in Chapter 5 that a self-reproducing machine is the destination of the research roadmap for the third digital revolution. Turing also appreciated the physical embodiment of computation. The last thing he wrote beautifully about is pattern formation in nature in the chemical basis of morphogenesis in 1952. His goal was to explain how to go from genes to anatomical structure, that is, from bits to atoms. He did this by showing how structure can emerge from the equations describing the spatial distributions of chemicals. Both Turing and von Neumann were approaching what author Douglas Adams called the life, the universe, and everything question. The most interesting thing that we humans have evolved is arguably interest itself, our self-awareness. The workings of this evolutionary process resides in a surprising connection between natural and artificial intelligence. Marvin Minsky, considered the father of AI, helped plan CBA around that relationship. If you lose your keys in a room, you can search the room to find them. If you're not sure what room you lost them in, then you would have to search all the rooms. If you're not sure which building, you have to search all the rooms in all the buildings. If you're not sure which city, you have to search all the rooms and all the buildings in all the cities. The further along this sequence you go, the more likely the search will be hopeless until it's nearly certain that you won't find your keys. The technical term for this state of affairs is the curse of dimensionality. What's behind the recent rapid advances in AI is not a breakthrough in understanding intelligence, it's progress in coping with the curse of dimensionality. A conversational computer must identify what you say out of all the possible things anyone can say. A self-driving car must recognize anything that can happen on the road. In what are called deep learning neural networks, the mathematical approaches to searching for solutions are those that have been used all along. What's new is having enough data to train the network to make these kinds of predictions 
and enough computing power to process the data to enable the layers of the networks to build up good representations of where to search. Something very similar happens in the human brain as sensory input is processed in higher and higher level abstractions. In evolution, the curse of dimensionality is the search for a survival fitness advantage by varying all the possible adaptations of an organism. The way life solves this problem is with Hox genes, one of the most conserved parts of the genome in all living creatures. These genes have not changed in hundreds of millions of years. Hox genes regulate the expression of other genes. They choreograph in what, what are called developmental programs, which are the steps in going from a single cell to a complete creature. Nothing in your genome says you have five fingers. Instead, there's a program that, when followed, produces five fingers. It's a program in exactly the modern sense of a computer program with logic connecting inputs and outputs. The shorthand way to, defer, to refer to the connection between evolution and development is evo-devo. Evo-devo passes through what's called a phylotypic bottleneck, or hourglass. In the phylum that we humans belong to, chordata, there are many approaches to reproduction and many body plans. But once the egg in the phylum chordata is fertilized, all the embryos appear to be similar before they specialize into whatever they're going to become. This similarity of early life stages was once mistakenly, mistakenly believed to be because ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny, a once popular comment meaning that the embryo itself passes through all the stages of evolution. It turns out that that's not true. The embryos are all passing through a common solution to morphogenesis, the birth of form. The human genome has billions of bases, and you have trillions of cells. There isn't enough time in the age of the universe to try varying them one at a time, and even if there was, most of those variations would either be inconsequential or fatal. The Hox genes provide a constraint to a much smaller space to search for alternative body plans among ones that are likely to be viable. This, then, is the other secret of life. The complexity is a consequence of detecting and correcting errors in the assembly of a small set of discrete building blocks the amino acids, and the diversity is a consequence of designs being represented as developmental programs rather than construction plans, the Hox genes. I think, therefore I am, is correct as long as you recognize that the thinking is done by your molecules as well as by your brain. That's what we're now learning to do in non-biological systems. I started this section by describing design as it is done today, which is something called imperative design. You must specify exactly how to make something. I've ended the section by showing that design and evolution is done by searching in a carefully constrained space of developmental programs. The goal of evolution is survival, but digital design principles aren't restricted to survival. Declarative design or generative design is the name for a design process that lets you describe what you want to do what you want something to do, but not how it should go about that. For example, you would specify the speed, load, and range of an airplane, but not the size and shape. Early attempts at declarative design were as limited as were early attempts at artificial intelligence, but progress is now being made in both for the same reason. We are mastering the curse of dimensionality. The search part of declarative design is currently done offline in simulation in a computer before anything is fabricated. 
but as computation and fabrication converge, design and fabrication will be able to occur online continuously. The airplane itself could evolve in response to changing loads in aerodynamic regimes. At that point, the distinction between animate and automata will become increasingly semantic. Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.